Hey there, and welcome to Now a Mem. This is a new podcast series to discuss what it's like to be a man in the 21st century, and how feminist issues are relevant to the lives of men and boys. It's been set up by researchers in the Centre for Research into Violence and Abuse at Durham University in the UK. My name is Dr Stephen Burrell, and I'm a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow. The podcast is mainly hosted by myself and Sandy Ruxton, who's an Honorary Research Fellow. Hi, Sandy. Hi, Stephen. So each episode is going to be based around a conversation with an expert. That could be a practitioner, an activist, an academic, someone who's got an in-depth knowledge of the issues we're going to be looking at. And we'll be asking them about their work and the research they're doing, as well as exploring their own personal experiences of doing work related to masculinity and gender equality and how they got involved in the area. Enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone. Um, so uh, welcome to today's episode of Now and Men, uh, where we're talking to Dr. Fiona Vera Gray, who's an assistant professor at Durham University in the Department of Sociology. Uh, and she's actually a fellow member of the Center for Research into Violence and Abuse, like me and Sandy. And so Fiona's work is focused on drawing together philosophy and sociology and empirical research on violence against women and girls, uh, most of which is, of course, perpetrated by men. So this is something which we really wanted to uh, discuss uh, on Now and Men. Um, and she has a practice-based background, uh, having worked in the specialist sexual violence sector for over a decade as both a frontline support provider and an expert in sexual violence prevention with young people, uh, as well as being a campaigner against violence against women. And Fiona's written two books. Um, the first one, Men's Intrusions, Women's Embodiment, and that was in 2016, and based on her PhD research into the experience of men's harassment of women in public, which I think she terms men's intrusions. I'm sure she'll explain why. And the second one was The Right Amount of Panic, How Women Trade Freedom for Safety in Public in 2018. She's also um, subsequently conducted research into women's experiences of online pornography, She's a regu regular media commentator on these issues. In fact, she's had an article published in The Guardian this week, which we'll link to in the show notes. And she's been an expert advisor to the government, including on the development of the new relationships and sex education curriculum. Yeah, so thank you. Uh, hi, Fiona, and uh, thank you very much for coming on to Now and Men. Um, so I get the impression that the last few weeks have been uh, really exhausting for many women in the UK uh, as a result of the horrifying details which have been coming out about the murder of Sarah Everard, as well as other high-profile uh, cases of, of men's violence towards women. Um, so we're really, um, and, and of course that's led to a lot of conversations about these issues as well. Um, so we're really grateful to you for, for being willing to, to speak to us about this. Um, and yeah, perhaps we could just start off by asking um, what are your reflections um, on where we are at now with these conversations that have been happening as of late? Uh, do you feel like we have made some kind of progress in the UK following on from the Sarah Everard case and other uh, cases uh, recently? Um, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here to talk to you about this. Uh, it's really hard, Stephen, because I think that I would have said yes. I mean, I, I was always quite positive and optimistic because I get to work with some incredible women um, who have done, you know, spent their life really working to end men's violence against women and girls. And so it's always quite inspiring, even when people think that the work might be difficult, because it is difficult, but you're surrounded by, you know, some really passionate, committed women. So, and I have seen change. And so I'm always thinking, yeah, 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 there's change, change to be possible. But to be honest, this last week in particular, um, it's really just made me think, we've got so far to go. Sometimes I look and I just think there's so far to go. I can't really see the change happening. Um, so normally it's pretty depressing and I, I don't normally like to think like that. But I mean, this morning even we saw Dominic Raab, who's the Justice Secretary, um, clearly not even understanding what misogyny is. Um, and I mean, this is the man that's tasked with overseeing our justice system. I mean, how are women supposed to get any form of justice um, in a society where the fact that women are targeted for a particular kind of behaviour, which is misogynistic, um, isn't even understood by those people who are in power, you know, and it's not necessarily him. That also shows that whoever was advising him didn't understand. It shows that it's actually ripples through all of the institutions that we hold up high. And I think that's what's been shown in the last couple of weeks with um, Sarah Everard, with the murder of Sabina Nessa. Um, th there's just, we still have so far to go. And, and sometimes it can feel a bit hopeless, which I think it, it does uh, today more than other days, maybe. Mm. 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, actually, Dominic Raab is an interesting case, isn't he? Because I think he has a bit of form, doesn't he? And I'm, I'm sure he said stuff in the past. About, I can't remember the exact words about feminism, basically, you know, expressing very uh, anti-feminist views. So actually, maybe it's not even a, an accident that he doesn't understand misogyny, if you, if you, if you know what I mean. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so, of course, uh, the cases that you mentioned have demonstrated, you know, major kind of continuing failures on the part of uh, the police uh, in this country mm -hmm. to tackle uh, men's violence towards women and girls. Um, so what, what do you think about um, how the police have responded to the kind of deep rooted uh, problems that have been highlighted over the uh, last few weeks? I mean, do you do you think the police are kind of institutionally uh, misogynistic? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's awful. Their response is just, and it's again, that's kind of, I guess, fed into why I'm feeling a bit, um, it's not hopeless. I don't feel hopeless, but I just, I can't think of what the word is. Um, but th that's why, I, a little bit why I feel like that, because you see, there's been so much work. And I, I always, prior to this year, maybe, would, would talk about the police has been one of the institutions that we have seen some real change. You know, since I've been working in the sector, probably now for about almost 20 years and in that time I've seen the development of specialist sexual offence training teams and we've seen SOAT officers, we've seen the rise of um, independent sexual violence advocates and that role being funded by the Home Office to provide an advocate who's independent from the criminal justice system to support women um, and girls and men and boys, anyone who's experienced sexual violence through the criminal justice system which is a great, you know, it, it, it's a great um, role to have and it's great to see the continued sustained funding for that role. So I think I'd always thought, you know, that it's one of the institutions where we have seen some change. And then the comments that are immediately after the Met made, immediately after um, the, at that stage, just the disappearance of um, Sarah Everard, uh, which were around, you know, women stay in your houses, you know, women be careful. And then after um, finding her body, you know, at, at which stage it sounds like they knew that it was a cop mm. by, by that point. And they were giving out messages such as this is incredibly rare. There was a professor of, I'm not sure what she's a professor of, criminology maybe, on Radio 4, in the couple of days afterwards, I'm sure you heard of it, who said um, women are being hysterical when they're talking about their safety work. And that kind of framing of women being paranoid because this is rare, this is not going to happen to you, being hysterical because, oh my God, you're being crazy, calm down, calm down, dears, or whatever they say. All of that just feeds into this wider difficulty that women and girls experience when we try to name our experiences of men's violence. We're doubted, we're, we're not seen as valid truth tellers. Um, and, and until we start doing that uh, in society more broadly, we can't have any hope that the institutions um, on that higher structural level are going to change. And so I think it is clear that there is still institutional distrust, disbelief within the police, institutionalised misogyny. I mean, there's been a lot of stuff in Twitter in the last couple of days from female police officers talking about their experiences of um, sexual harassment in the Met, including one who recently um, was talking about being flashed at while on duty by a male serving officer, um, which she never reported because we're told this is not going to be taken seriously. We're told we're going to be seen as hysterical or paranoid. It's just huge. It's endemic and it's systemic. And that makes it, it can feel very overwhelming um, if you look at it like that, which is why it can be very useful just to focus on the small bits that we can actually do to change. But I think in the last couple of weeks, it's been very difficult to look at that because all we seem to see is this huge, big, um, troublesome picture. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose another element has been, of course, the kind of responsibilizing of, of women, right? Like yet again. And and like I feel like recently it's just been like just so shockingly unbelievable. Some of the things which have been said that like women should be like resisting arrest, basically, <laughs> you know, hailing buses if they're being, uh, you know, uh, approached by police officers and stuff like that. It's just remarkable, isn't it? But I mean, there, there's something interesting there as well, isn't there, um, that maybe we have seen conversations moving more towards uh, more being more critical of that and, and asking, well, who's actually perpetrating this and, you know, what role do men have to play in this? You know, men, men are responsible. Men should be uh, speaking out about this. I mean, do you, do you think we have seen a change there? You know, does that give you any hope perhaps? I think I did see that in, in maybe the end of March, April this year after mm. um, uh, the murder of Sarah Everard, but I haven't seen that in the last couple of, Days. And maybe it's just because we're too close and the narrative got completely taken over by the police who were very clear that this was 
the responsibility of women. I mean, one of the commissioners, I think, in Yorkshire came out and said that Sarah Everard should have submitted to getting into the car. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that someone could, on one hand, listen to the victim impact statement from her mother, mm. and then on the other hand, think that it was in any way appropriate to suggest that she should have resisted arrest from a serving Met officer, uh, it's just ridiculous. And also when we think about, you know, the way that women aren't this big homogenous group of women, that, that we're treated differently based on our race, based on mm. our class, um, based on our sexuality, you start to see that things like, you know, resisting arrest, that's not available as an option to women who, if they did that, would then be subjected to much more forms of police mm. violence because of institutionalised racism. So it's just, yeah, I've, you're always quite hopeful, Stephen, I think, and I'm always quite hopeful with you. And at the moment, I just feel like, oh, God, really, really, mm. we're, we're, we're here. So it is good that we're having these conversations. Um, but even, I mean, you mentioned the Guardian article, and, and anytime you write in the Guardian, it's a really weird publication in that you always get, I say you, I always get, but I've spoken to other women who get the same, mm. random emails from men telling me why I'm wrong or why I don't know the research or even those kind of more benevolent forms of like, oh, you're right, and have you thought about this? And have you thought about that? And what about this? And it's like my expertise are even undermined even as I'm being positioned as an expert in this area. But so some of the responses that I've gotten from that as well make me think, I just think that some men aren't, they aren't getting it um, and mm. not entirely understanding how much of a problem this is for all of the women that know. Yeah, and I suppose that shows these, doesn't it, the importance of men just you know challenging other men on this and saying, look, we need to we need to listen to what women are saying. Just stop interrupting for a second and just listen. <laughs> yeah. um, yeah. But, but oh, sorry, Sandy. Well, I was just going to move on to another of our uh, questions, which which relates to this, which is what what is it in your view that we would like men to be doing in response to men's violence mm -hmm. against women and all of the conversations that have been taking place in the wake of Sarah Everard's murder. It's, I mean, it's, this is Stephen's area. I mean, I'm, Stephen's much more of an expert, I think, around men's particular role than myself. The things that I see men not doing that they need to do is something about acknowledging your complicity and acknowledging that you, you're complicit and you're benefiting from a system that's hurting and harming women and somehow not allowing that acknowledgement to then put you on the defensive. And so I think as soon as you open yourself up to acknowledging that, and instead of taking a position of, uh, no, not me, I'm different, I'm not that guy, I'm separate from those men, it, it, if you start to actually see that there is some kind of connection between you, um, then I think you start to feel implicated in, in needing to find the solution because you start feeling implicated in the problem. And I'm not someone that, and I don't think any, to be honest, I don't think any feminist that works in violence against women is someone that comes from a position of thinking that violence is somehow inherent in men, inherent in masculinity. And so I'm not saying that men are complicit in the fact that they are inherently aggressive. You know, I have men and boys in my life who I, who I adore, love, respect, inspire me. It's not that. It's about understanding how this wider system of masculinity, which you talk about in this podcast, how that works to position you in ways that you have access to resource and power that ultimately um, is based on the backs of women and girls oppression and violence being like a, a really strong tool to reinforce that oppression. So what that means practically, that's the kind of theoretical thing, what that means practically, to be really honest, is really simple things like stop watching pornography, just stop watching pornography, um, start challenging your friends when they say really, just when they make jokes that you wouldn't be comfortable with them making around your girlfriends, your wife, your sister, your female friends, your mum. You know, the fact that Wayne Cousins was called the rapist by police, like it was a banter nickname. This idea of banter just a lot of the time is, is a way for men to bond over and through the oppression of women and girls. And so to start to challenge that stuff, to be that annoying guy. Um, and I think those are the, the, the small personal steps that men can take. And then to start to feed into this bigger conversation that, you know, you're having on this podcast about all of the other things that you can do to really take an active role in ending men's violence.
Sure. I mean, you, you know, you said you weren't an expert in this area, but that sounds like a pretty good answer to me. But, uh, but I wondered also whether you <laughs> whether you thought there are any any potential difficulties or tensions that can arise when men do get involved in this work. You know, what, what, what should men oh, who might be listening to this podcast be aware of? What should they not do? Oh, it's really hard. I mean, it is because it's how do you support without um, co-opting? And I think it's really difficult. And I think that any particular male academics working in this field have to be very, very mindful of how do you not, how do you recognize the fact that your voice is probably going to have more value than a woman's voice? And so if you say something that she's been saying, you're going to get invited to more international conferences and get in more journals and your, your, your platform is going to increase based on the work of women who might not be able to do that and it's something to be honest I mean women we have to manage that as well in terms of in academia having to make sure that we're not taking from the work of practitioners in the field those on the front line and using that again that we get seen as the expert when actually the person's at the expert is the person that answers the call on the rape crisis helpline that has an up-to-date understanding the expert is the survivor of sexual violence who, who knows exactly particular perpetrator tactics and and why culture and society silenced her. So I think it's yeah. that, it's being aware of your own position um, and what that means. And that idea of kind of passing the mic when you can and using your platform to actually give platform to voices that aren't as valued as yours. And that's something really important in feminism as a, as a white feminist. That's something I need to be really, really mindful of is how to not take up space, she says, whilst taking up space. <laughs> but you've, you've got to kind of think about, right, we, how can I use my platform to make sure that it's not just my voice that's being valued in this conversation? Because also, of course, that there are examples where men have not practised what they preach, you yeah. know, and, and actually that's incredibly damaging. And, and also perhaps that they haven't recognised the sort of history of women's struggle around these issues, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And that actually, we, we've come late to this, very late to this party, <laughs> if we've even arrived at all, frankly. <laughs> so, Maybe a separate party. You can have a separate party. We have a separate party, yeah, but they're like joint yeah. parties. They can meet up in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that is one of the one of the con maybe one concern I have at, at the moment is well, on the one hand, like I think there have been more men motivated to do something, uh, which is really obviously is is brilliant and is really important and needed. But at the same time, we we also don't want men kind of just stumping in now and kind of feeling like they have all the answers and kind of taking over the conversation. Um, so yeah, so I think it's very contradictory, isn't it? That on the one hand, we want men to speak out so much more, but at the same time do so in a way which isn't taking over the conversation and which is listening and mm. um, and being accountable as well, I suppose, about um, about their behaviour. So I think that's exactly it. What you just said, they're, they're the two things. I mean, I've always thought about this and, and I've learned about this through thinking about anti-racism work, but there's, there's parallels there around listening mm. and being accountable. You need to be accountable. And if, if women are pulling you up and saying that's, that's not okay or you need to stop doing that, rather than arguing, it's about being open and hearing that. Um, and again, treating women as though they're valid kind of truth tellers of what the world is, not disagreeing with them automatically or defending your position automatically. Um, and listening, that, that other side. So again, that not taking up too much space by talking, but actually having a space where you are more reflective and, and are able to, to hear and listen, um, I think is really important. It can be used as a, again, similar to anti-racism work, the, the complexity around this can be used as, an, as a way to opt out, like, oh God, I don't wanna, mm. yeah, that's yeah. a bit complicated, I'm not gonna do that. And I just really encourage men to not, not do that, like jump mm. in, get it wrong, have someone talk to you about how to get it right mm. and do that rather than stay out of it. Because again, it's not, it's something that women and girls are on the brunt of, but it's not our problem to solve. I mean, we've, mm. we've got we got a lot of problems. <laughs> um, men's mm. violence is really a problem for men to, to have that conversation with other men about mm. um, what they can do to, to stop it. And given what you're saying there about listening to women's voices, perhaps we could talk a little bit about some of the research that you've done, because we mm. know, you know, we said at the start, you've conducted in-depth research with women who have been subjected to harassment or intrusion from women, from men in, in public spaces. Now, as a man, that's simply not something I have to deal with or worry about on a day-to-day -day basis to anywhere near the same extent. Mm -hmm. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about some of the, some of your findings around the impact of, of this behaviour um, yeah. on women's lives. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. So 
The best way to describe it, I guess, is what I found essentially was that women ourselves weren't necessarily aware of the impact because what we'd done to alleviate the threat of something happening was just restrict ourselves. Um, and so it just becomes, and this is all stuff that we've seen in the last week, it just becomes common sense for a woman to not walk through a park at night, to not go for a run at night, to not, you know, contrary to the advice that they're giving us now, but women talking about, you know, I wouldn't catch a bus and sit by myself. And if I did, I would sit next to the driver or I would sit next to another woman. Um, or more likely women would talk about using the tube because that felt safer than uh, uh, using a bus if they were based in London. Um, Women talking about things like, uh, you know, taking some women would talk about like taking a baseball cap out with them or sneakers. And so if they were coming home from a night, they'd put on a baseball cap and put on sneakers. So they were less identifiably feminine as they were walking down the street. That felt, you know, like they would feel safer. Um, really old school traditional things like trying to go out with a male escort, essentially. So feeling much safer if you're out in public with um, a male friend or, or, or a male colleague or, or something like that than you would be by yourself. And all of these forms of safety work, which was a um, term that was coined by my supervisor at the time, Liz Kelly, all these forms of safety work have become so habitual and so just part of what it is to be a woman, you know, women were talking about learning to do these things when they were eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. And you, you think about it, young girls are situated in relationship to this idea of stranger danger differently than young boys are. Young boys still have the sense of stranger danger, um, but people are much more fearful of what might happen for their their girls. And girls get a much stronger message um, about that, which is connected to them being female. And so because we'd been doing all of this stuff and it's become so habitual and so commonplace, in lots of ways, women themselves had not actually had the time or the opportunity to sit and think about it and realise that actually that it's not common sense. This is actually a whole bunch of extra work that we're having to do that men aren't having to do, you know. And, and I guess that is, when I feel more hopeful, that is some of the stuff that's changed. I think that that, that has changed. I see that more. Um, I do see there being more of a recognition from everyone, from men and from women, that actually it's not fair that women are having to not do all of these things, particularly in England. You know, you think it starts getting dark here now at like, I think it's like six-ish and it's going to go down to like four-ish and light at eight-ish. And if we're confining women to the house um, within those, those uh, time periods, we've got to think if women really do have freedom of movement, you know, in, in the UK in any real sense. So yeah, I think that that's what I found that, that women are doing all of these forms of safety work in order to restrict how much we're ex experiencing. And also this idea that the threat of sexual violence is really still this, and I mean, it was thought about like this in the 70s, and it definitely is today, is still this um, shadow or this, this kind of haunting um, that a lot of women modify their behavior in relationship to. So if you're walking down the street, and you're feeling like there's a man behind you following you, that experience for a lot of women is an experience of the threat of sexual violence. It's not just an experience, it's not an experience of, oh, he might mug me or he might take my phone. The, the fear there is uh, he's going to rape and kill me. And I think that that's what we've seen. That's why it's been so big in the last, um, uh, say six months really, because we've seen that contrary to being told that this is rare and we're hysterical, that actually this is something that happens to women and girls, you know, killed in, in public space for no reason other than the fact that they're a woman. And there's something important about men listening to what you're saying there, you know, and acting on that. So, so you know, on a day-to-day -day level, being careful about following women, you know, closely behind at night, for example, not mm -hmm. doing that, you know, and mm -hmm. thinking about what how women are experiencing the public space. Mm -hmm. And and I guess kind of, I mean, this is, I'm sure you would have covered this in, in other episodes as well, but the idea of men as bystanders and of men being able to um, to see, I guess, how a woman might feel in public space. And it's not about staying away from us, you know, feeling like, oh, God, I need to stay away. But it's about like feeling like you actually also need to be um, kind of interjecting if you see something that doesn't seem Right, and not necessarily interjecting in a way that is going to cause a confrontation. But for example, if you were to see a woman walking and you were to see a man look like he was following her, to make that man aware that you see what is happening, 
you know, in a way that hopefully is going to dissuade him from thinking that he can. Yeah, sometimes bearing witness is good enough, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's something as well about your work, Fiona, which which I think really had an impact on me was, I think, you know, perhaps you've kind of criticised some of the language around uh, women's safety, which we've heard a lot recently, um, because, and partly that does play into the idea of somehow that we need to like protect women, yeah. um, but also um, the fact that it's about so much more than that, right? It's about, it's not just about women's safety, it's the fact that women's freedom is, is curtailed uh, by men's violence um, in the ways you've described. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that comes, some of that thinking comes from Evan Stark um, around domestic violence and, and around how this is actually like a liberty crime. This is about freedom. This is about restricting women's freedom. So I think that the conversation very much in terms of public space is, is always centred on this idea of safety. And, and if we're thinking about safety, we get to different things. If we ask women how safe they feel in particular spaces, you know, you do feel safer when there's more streetlights or you might feel safer when there's more people. Women definitely say they feel more safe when there's more women around. And so do men in public space. A lot of research. Everyone feels safer when there's women around. And so what's happening in terms of women restricting themselves in public space is also public spaces are starting to feel more scary for everybody because actually everyone benefits from when women are able and free to, to move about in public space. But if we start looking at freedom, we get to different solutions, right? That's when we start to get to, okay, how do you expand women's sense of space? Um, I guess this is one thing that I didn't mention before in terms of the, the impact or the effect, the harm of all of this, because I think a lot of the time we think about the harm in terms of very medical, right? So post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, for survivors of um, sexual violence, um, is a, a real master narrative that we think about. And sometimes when you think about forms of sexual harassment that are a little bit more diffuse than that, um, so being told to cheer up is an example that I commonly use because it's a really good one because, you know, number one, no one's saying that that should be criminal. We're not saying that should be criminal. It wouldn't be covered by misogyny, hate crime. It wouldn't be covered by any of these solutions. It doesn't matter if there's lots of streetlights. It's not that women feel necessarily unsafe when that happens. But what that is is a very clear message that actually there's nothing that could be going on internally that is more valuable than what you look like to me in this particular mm. moment. So really, when you think about like the basis of misogyny, it really does represent this uh, differential in how much we value men and what mm. we value men for and how much we value women and what we value them for. So mm. I think we need to start thinking about it. If we think just about safety, we get very quickly to solutions that are focused on criminal justice um, mm. and harms that are focused on a medical model of understanding what harm is. I think if we move towards freedom, we start to really expand thinking about what the harm of this could be. And that hopefully will start to broaden out the solutions that could um, stop it from happening. Yeah, and, and, and connected to um, something you were saying there about who we value, um, you've also, to move on to a, a different topic, um, you've also done a lot of research around pornography, mm. which is, of course, uh, now, you know, a big business. It's easily accessible to millions of people from a young age online. Um, and your research has looked at, um, you know, what the content of mainstream, easily accessible online pornography uh, looks like um, on some of the biggest sites on the internet. Um, so I was wondering if you could perhaps just tell us a little bit about what you found there. And um, and do you think that that research has any lessons in relation to men and masculinities and, and male sexuality or, or, you know, how pornography is, is presenting male sexuality? <laughs> yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll go back a little bit and I'll talk about how I started, why I started looking at that from work on sexual harassment. And because it ties into this idea of freedom and space. And the idea that what sexual harassment in public does is it encourages women to reduce our space or restrict our space. Like sometimes very literally, you know, women sitting on the tube that try and pull ourselves in and put our bags on our lap and make ourselves smaller, become less visible in public. Um, and then from that, I then was thinking as well about, you know, the stories that we tell about sex and sexuality. And, and that very much still when we're thinking about heterosexuality, that's very much focused in terms of men are the ones that do and women are the ones that kind of are done to, you know. And we see that sometimes even in the ways that we talk about sexual consent, we need to be really careful about how we talk about sexual consent so we don't just end up replicating this idea that men are the ones that ask for sex, women are the gatekeepers, women can either agree to sex that's offered or we can refuse it but we can't actually mm. ask for it ourselves you know that's mm. that's somehow not not seen as something that women's role is 
And so when I was thinking about that, I then started to think about, right, like how much, how much do we still talk about women's masturbation? Do we talk about women's masturbation at all? No, not really, unless it's done for a male audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I started thinking about, right, okay, so what about women's use of pornography and women's use of mainstream? I'm getting there. This will come around to the question. Oh, yeah. Women's use of mainstream porn sites. Um, you know, because when the, the, a lot of the research that's been done on women's use of pornography focuses on kind of, in inverted commas, feminist pornography or ethical pornography or alternative forms of pornography, not women as being in relation to what we think of when we think of pornography, which is the big major porn sites. So then I did a project um, which was talking to women about their use of pornography. And what I found there was that women are using these mainstream porn sites. They're not using these alternative ones that you have to pay for. Of course they're not. I mean, why would you use... Where, when else do we see people always buying the more ethical product when you've got the other one available for free? Um, yeah. And so then I thought, right, what we need to do is understand then what is the content of mainstream porn? What is it that women are accessing? To be able to understand whether or not they're accessing that is helping expand kind of their sexual freedom or, or closing that down. So what we did in the end was just looked at the titles because we thought, look, this is just the most clearly subject, uh, objective, if you're going to critique the concept of objectivity, but this is the easiest way of looking at what the sites themselves, how they're describing the material, you know, and that's providing the, the, the framework for the user to see the material. So in a way, it doesn't even matter what they're showing you. They're telling you how you're supposed to see mm-hmm. it so they're telling you this is you're supposed to think that this is a daddy and a daughter doesn't matter if it's a dad or a daughter they're selling you a particular fantasy and that's the fantasy that they're selling you so we looked at that on the mainstream sites and we wanted to see what's on the first page because that for us was important both in terms of it's what's shown to a first-time user so you know little kid that's typing in porn and going to Pornhub. we wanted to see, like what are they being shown um before searching and then the other thing, tying back to the women in pornography, is I wanted to know, because those messages that are on the front page, they're communicated to everybody that goes to the site. Whether or not you click on the videos, it doesn't matter. Your your mind is taking in some of those words that you are seeing, you know, as you're going to your little search box and searching for whatever you're looking for. So we wanted to know what is it that the mainstream porn sites themselves are putting on that front page. Um, and we found, I think it was 12% in the end of it, was content that using the World Health organization's definition of sexual violence would constitute sexual violence which on one hand it feels quite low you know because there's also a bunch of the material that doesn't fall into that classification that's still really problematic um but but we wanted to specifically use that definition because we didn't want the study to be critiqued on the basis of you know well, your sexual violence is another person's sexual fantasy blah blah, blah. so we thought right okay let's do that and the other thing that actually makes it quite surprising is that it was on the front page, and this is the vast majority of what we found was against the terms and conditions of the sites themselves. So the sites themselves were saying this material shouldn't be there, and, and the kinds of material that they say shouldn't be there include simulated forms of sexual violence, implied forms of sexual violence, um, uh, material that um, condones or endorses sexual violence. So the sites themselves recognise that there is a potential for harm in quote-unquote fantasy representations of rape, for example. And yet they are still allowing this material on their front page. So some examples we found some type like things like forced and forced again and again forced on the front page. You know, and how does that fit with the companies then saying that they're not allowing this material on their sites because it was a simple word search. This is something that could be super easily automated by the sites themselves. Just search for the word forced in all of your titles, you know? Um, And it shows to me that actually the porn sites have no interest in uh, regulating the material, that their terms and conditions are just there so they look like they're kind of, you know, on board and doing good things. But actually, ultimately, they, they just care about their bottom dollar they care about getting people on the site and making people stay on the site because that's how they start to generate uh, to take your data and and to generate money in the same way that facebook twitter all of the rest of them operate mm. what do you what do you think from your research that what does it tell us about gender you know in contemporary society i mean obviously you were looking at women's uh, experiences of it but but uh, and, but did you also find interesting things in relation to what it says about 
you know, men, given if, if most of this is aimed at men, uh, and you know, how is masculinity represented in in pornography? Yeah, did, did anything come up around around uh, any of those things? Yeah, it's a paper that I really, you know, how you have these things that you really want to write that you're never going to get a time chance to write, which is what I wanted to do with you, Stephen. Do you remember we were going to do it? It's, and yeah. it's so there, but to actually look at to get a sample of three thousand, because the thing is, we collected over one hundred fifty thousand of these video sets with the titles and stuff it's a massive data sample it's the biggest one that's ever been collected which is great but then also is like what do we do with all of this data this is so much um so one of the other things that i wanted to do was to look through it not for forms of sexual violence but just to take a random sample of say 3000 and have a look at um exactly this so what is it positioning men as doing um, what is it positioning women as doing? What is it positioning in terms of the value of men and the value of women? Because mainstream pornography, I mean, to be terribly kind of blunt, really does just represent men as a as a constantly erect penis. And and the impact that that must have, but it must, on, on men's sexual anxiety, on their concerns about their sexual performance, on, you know, all of these things. And again, those messages are being given to 12, 13, 14-year-old boys who don't understand that these men are taking Viagra and they don't they think that this is actually what they should be able to do, that they should be able to perform for hours and hours, um, that they should be able to do all of these things. So there's that, plus the aggression that is in there that, that is showing that they should be aroused by aggression, you know, and, and for the women that I've spoken to, they were talking about things like not realizing until, and this is kind of younger women, generation that grew up with porn, not realizing until they were in their 20s, really, that actually they could say that they didn't like having their hair pulled or they didn't like being spat on because all of the boys that they were having sex with were, were doing it and all of the porn they were watching showed that that was happening and women were getting pleasure from it. So they thought that there was something wrong with them if they didn't necessarily like it. And I think that's probably quite similar for men and boys, that there's probably bound to be some some instruction. I mean, that's the thing, that's one of the things that I found from women, that they definitely are going to porn for instruction about how to do particular sexual acts, um, that some of the instruction that they've been given about pornography, actually they don't really like themselves, but they think that there must be something wrong with them if they're not a man who is aroused by aggression mm. or force or non-consent or mm. spitting slapping hitting um you know any of those things that are really just presented as being kind of uh, usual sexual practice in mainstream pornography so you've described very well there what what the nature of the problems are but i'm wondering you know what what should we do about the widespread influence of this kind of material on the development amongst young men in particular of harmful attitudes harmful behaviors towards relationships towards sex towards masculinity you know, whose responsibility is it and who should do what? It's really hard. I mean, this is honestly, it's just, it's really hard. I think when I get down to it, I think that men, because my focus has been on women and my focus is on women still. And and I do think that women need to start talking to, to women about pornography. I also think men need to start talking to men about pornography. And, and that's not from my research. That's from a colleague's research. Um, but it ties into what I found that actually... Porn amongst men is being used as a form of banter. It's being used as this kind of every guy watches porn. Actually, not all men, hashtag not all men, watch porn, <laughs> but they really don't. And actually, men need to start talking to other men about, actually, I don't watch pornography, and these are the reasons that I don't watch pornography, and I don't want to watch pornography. I'm not aroused by pornography. I'm not into it. Because I think that that starts to give men permission to not watch porn. And, and I don't think they have that permission when the dominant narrative in society is that all men watch porn. Um, and so I think that that side of it, but also men need to start talking to other men about the kinds of porn that they're watching, because at the moment, and, and same with women, at the moment, no one's talking about it. It's like this big, shameful secret. And what I found in my research and what colleague found when she talked to men is that a lot of, for me, women and for her men are feeling very conflicted about the kinds of pornography that they're actually aroused by, that, that, that you know, women that I spoke to would say things like, they would finish and they would wipe their browser history, shut their laptop, push their laptop away from them, um, actively have really a visceral response to what they were just aroused by. And I think that that's, it's awful because it means that we're starting, you know, it's another way of kind of engendering the sense of shame in us around our sexuality. You know, we used to have, I mean, 
I'm very much an atheist, but you know, I, I see a lot of institutions around religion doing this, doing a similar thing about engendering shame in the human body and shame around your your sexuality and your sexual practice. And I think pornography actually does the same thing. Instead of increasing people's sexual space and freedom in that, it actually really encourages you to feel a lot of shame, to feel very secret, um, secretive, and, and that kind of thing. And so I think what we need to do to start to challenge the ways that they've hijacked or dominated what we think of when we think of sex these days mm. is we need to start having those conversations with each other even if they're really difficult super embarrassing um and if there's things there that we don't really want to i think once we start sharing that stuff with each other and i think once men start talking to each other about that maybe they'll it'll give them a bit of a space to start to share some of that conflict and to start to share the the bits where they actually feel quite uncomfortable with what they've been watching and then maybe start to make a different decision um, about what kind of material they want to to watch. So I think there's that. So I think there's an individual stuff. I think the government has a role to play in actually holding these companies to account because they're currently not like held to account at all yeah. for what they're doing, which just makes no sense to me. You can literally, you literally tick a box saying you're 18 that's all you have to do. You know, we wouldn't allow that. You wouldn't allow someone to walk in and buy like, I don't know, a whisk bottle of whiskey and say, are you 18? Yes, I am 18. Okay, cool. Here you go. Because we recognize that we've decided as a society that there needs to be an age at which point it's acceptable to access that material, um, that product. And we have done the same for pornography, except there's just no way that we're making these companies enforce that. Mm. Um, so I think there is really a role for government. I think some governments are starting to do it. You could make the same argument about some of the, some of the issues that have come out around the incel movement and, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, how easy it is to disappear into some trough of ghastly material, you know, yeah. just by typing in one word, really. Yeah, absolutely. And, and... The wild, wild west of the internet, I think it's really hard because the internet has done some amazing, amazing things mm. in terms of, I think we wouldn't be having the conversation about sexual violence that we're having now if it wasn't for the internet, because that has enabled, when there's so many women talking about experiences of sexual harassment, you can't dismiss them as much. Um, and we've seen the same stuff around, you know, movements um, towards race equality or like raising issues of racism. Again, if it wasn't for the Internet and if it wasn't for people just broadcasting these messages constantly, you know, around institutionalized racism in the police and police brutality and, and all of that. Again, I don't think that the mainstream media would have necessarily picked up that message. So the Internet has a real place in terms of giving us access to a range of voices that aren't valued by mainstream media but at the same alongside that this idea of it as being just this wildly unregulated space has actually it means that a lot of it is taken up by some really truly awful awful stuff um, that we need to be thinking about how we both enable the 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 good aspects of it you know, I'm not talking like, yeah, let's censor the internet. That's not what I'm saying. But it's about, you know, holding companies that are profiting off this, how we start to hold them account accountable, how we start to hold Facebook and Twitter accountable for the levels of online harassment and rape threats that women experience um, when they're on their platforms, rather than just saying, oh, we, we, we can't do anything about it. So I think there's, there's, there is a big conversation to have about it. We, w we wanted to ask you also about issues around prevention. Um, because, you know, as I think we said at the start, you've been active for a long time in the rape crisis movement in the UK, delivering, developing sexual violence prevention work. But what more do you think we could be doing to prevent men's violence against women from happening in the first place? And, and is, are there sort of messages from your work and research about engaging with men and boys about these issues? It's hard because it, it ties back into me not feeling very hopeful at the moment. <laughs> Like I, I was, I would normally have a list of things, but I don't know at the moment. In terms of prevention, I think that maybe we're quite far away from even really being able to think about preventing it because we, we don't even seem to be able to name what the problem is or what the harm is. We're not even at that first level of acknowledging that there's a problem. To get to the point where we actually pre start preventing it, at the moment today, for me, it feels like it's quite far away. I mean, usually we say things like, um, you know, sex and relationships, education and awareness raising campaigns and blah, 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 blah. But I mean, 
just at the moment, it just feels like actually we need to just have an acknowledgement of the fact that violence against women and girls exists. It significantly restricts the lives of all the women and girls that you know, um, and therefore it is a form of harm that we all need to, we're all implicated in, in ending if we actually care at all about each other as human beings. And I think once, once we get to that point as a society, maybe we can start then thinking about, right, okay, what can we do to prevent it? Just depressing. I'm sorry, I'm depressed. <laughs> no, I think that's a really powerful and important message. So, yeah, thank you. And and, and just to um, conclude, um, we do like to ask um, guests on Now and Men a little bit about their kind of personal stories as well. Mm -hmm. and, and I suppose I was just interested in, you know, um, what does feminism uh, mean to you? And what impact has it had uh, on your life? Um, yeah, is there anything which, which you'd like mm -hmm. to share about, about that? What a nice question. Uh, I don't know really. It's it's changed my life in a way. It's really weird because I am a feminist and I do think of myself as a feminist, but I think about myself as a violence against women and girls activist. And and that's kind of more in some ways, I guess, how I think about my work or like myself and my activism in a way. It's weird. Um, but then when I look back, I mean, I had, for anyone that's a teacher that's listening or, or anything like that, I had a teacher in high school, her name was Ms Lovett, and she somehow, I don't know how, this was in Australia, got us to, like on our reading list, there was Audrey Lord and Adrian Rich, Alice Walker, um, we read a bunch of uh, Indigenous uh, Australian writers as well, which was incredible and unheard of, and somehow her doing that really when I was just at that age really actually just made it just made it seem so natural for me I mean I'm not that it, I didn't come from a family where gender equality was something that anyone really spoke about it, it wasn't outside of it, it wasn't in my world in that way um but I love poetry I've always loved poetry and so I think reading Audre Lorde and Adrian Rich is probably the way that I kind of found and made sense of feminism and then did philosophy did a whole undergraduate philosophy degree where they didn't talk about Simone de Beauvoir at all <laughs> just like she doesn't exist doesn't count as a philosopher um and then started working in rape crisis and I think that that was weirdly how the stuff kind of started to come uh together but yeah I think that that's it you can really you can really make a difference I think as a high school teacher in particular probably primary school as well but you can really make a difference um in the input that you can give to someone that they might not have necessarily received otherwise i think mm, that's quite a hopeful hopeful message and prevention more feminist texts in high school <laughs> absolutely and I, I get the sense that like being part of a movement perhaps makes a big difference right like yeah, yeah. yeah totally i mean the violence against women and girls movement in the uk is incredible it's incredible i mean i i, I it's it, it feels like my family like there's women that are just yeah, that I, I, I look up to, I admire, I love on a really deep level. And I think that they have the commitment that you see to someone thinking, actually, I'm going to use this life that I have to try and make the world a better place. Um, that's a daily source of inspiration. So that's what I need. That's that's happier. That's less. Um, that's less depressing. All my love. Yeah. I think you know. We thank you for for the lead that you've given, really, because if you if you weren't doing that work, we wouldn't be doing what we do, and we wouldn't be running this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's brilliant. It's also I think that taking up men starting to take up the mantle, like you guys are doing now, like Stephen's done in his work, like you have done in your work, Sandy. I think that it's really. That's important because that then maybe gives women a bit of a chance to do the other bits of our work that we've wanted to do, but we haven't had the chance to do, you know, because and also because men will listen to other men. You guys have a, a particular experience of the world that we might not have access to, you know, not saying that you all have the same experience, but you have an experience of, of what it's like to be um, a man in the world. And that's an experience that women can't talk to men about with any real authority. So. Yeah, I'm glad that you guys are starting to have these conversations and, and have people listen in to them. Well, thank you so much, Fiona. It's really appreciated. Thank you. Thank you so much. So that was a great interview with Fiona, wasn't it, Stephen? I, I wondered what you thought. 
Yeah, I thought it was amazing. Uh, Fiona, uh, what she was saying, I mean, you know, it, it had a, a big impact on me, really. Her work uh, always has a big impact on me whenever I hear what she's saying or, or read about her research and her activism. And um, I just really hope, you know, in this moment, in the conversations we're having in the UK and, and around the world more broadly about, uh, you know, men's violence against women and the, and the huge impacts it has uh, on women's lives. And as Fiona said, in, in kind of constraining their freedoms, you know, that we listen to uh, what women and what uh, activists like Fiona are saying, and and we take that on board in our day to day lives, and we strive to to do more and to not stay silent anymore about this, and and we create change, you know, in ourselves, uh, among our peers, in our workplaces or schools or organisations, you know, wherever whatever we do in our lives, um, there's a lot more I think all men could be doing. Um, so I think it's really important that we we do that. Um, yeah, what what did you think? Yes, I, I agree with you, Stephen. But I, I loved um, the passion, the expertise, the in-depth knowledge, um, and also I think some of the nuance that Fiona brought to to the subject, really. Um, and I was also very interested in this sort of combination of, on the one hand, her hopelessness in this moment, you know, when things can feel quite desperate, but also some of the hope she did also provide for us. And, and there, at the end, when she was talking about her own education the power of uh, of that and the influence of some of the feminist texts that she'd read at a young age, you know, she did provide us with a very interesting uh, um, insight into the power of education. And uh, I think some of the English teachers that I know will be very delighted to hear that uh, um, reading and literature has that kind of impact. They know it anyway. Uh, but but it's also what we found when we were doing our book on men's activism to end violence against women that actually education at heart has a huge role to play. Yeah, exactly. And and I think if people are feeling a bit hopeless, there's something to take from that, isn't there, about the change that individuals can make, that this, this teacher of Fiona's clearly had a big impact on her. And in turn, I'm sure that Fiona has had a big impact on other people through her work. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's certainly impacted on me. So, uh, but yeah, thank you everybody uh, for listening. We will do more episodes on this topic in the future. Uh, so until next time, thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Now and Men. Any references we mentioned will all be in the show notes. You're welcome to email us at nowandmen at gmail.com if you'd like to ask us questions or suggest a guest. And we're really keen that the podcast should be listened to by as many people as possible to encourage more men to think about issues of masculinity and gender equality. So please do follow Now and Men so the latest episode drops in your podcast feed as soon as it's released. You can also leave a review and share it among your friends and colleagues and look out for our next episode coming soon. So you take care, take care of each other and speak to you again soon.